Welcome to this Ubula audio presentation of a Rick Brandt science adventure story, The Wailing Octopus, by John Blaine. Volume 2, Chapter 3, The Shadow The two scientists had been walking ahead of Rick and Scotty, but Zircon's keen ears had overheard the boy's remarks. However, he was too wise to make his interest obvious. He waited until the group passed a store with a large display, then stopped, as though to examine it. Rick found himself surveying a collection of tools for the do-it-yourself addict. "'What's this about Steve and a tail?' Zircon asked. He pointed at a power drill set, as though discussing it. His normally loud voice wouldn't have been heard five feet away. Rick shook his head, then pointed at a different drill set. Anyone watching would have thought the tools were the subject of the conversation. Rick quickly outlined what had happened and concluded, Scotty spotted a tail on us a few minutes ago. Same guy? Scotty bent down for a closer look at a series of wood power bits. His voice was scarcely audible. Not the same one. This one is a Virgin Islander. Looks like a farmer. When we stopped, he walked right by. He's out of sight now, but he'll pick us up as soon as we start. Tony Briotti, to whom this kind of adventure was new, asked, What'll we do about it? Nothing, Zircon answered. Steve Ames wanted to get rid of his shadow when the boys helped him out. But we have no particular reason for wanting to get rid of ours. Let him follow. Undoubtedly, whoever is trailing Steve got interested when they saw him talking with the boys. But they'll learn nothing by trailing us. And it's one less for Steve to contend with, Rick added. Scotty straightened up. I have to admit, this bunch of tools is beginning to bore me a little. Where are we going? Sircon shrugged. I have nothing in mind. We might check in at the hotel. I'd rather swim, Rick said. Same here. Scotty made a quick survey of the street without seeming to do so. No sign of our friend. He's probably in another doorway. That Hobart and I might as well check in, Tony suggested. I'd like to swim, but frankly, I'm a little sleepy from too much lunch. How about checking in for us? Rick asked. Then we could get right into the water. No need for all of us to go to the hotel. The scientists agreed, and at Scotty's investigation hailed a taxi. As the car rolled off toward the boat where their luggage was stored, Scotty grinned. This was the only taxi in sight. wonder how our friend will manage to follow us. He had his answer at the pier. While Zircon was piling their overnight bags into the taxi, a farmer rode past on a bicycle. He didn't look at them. There he goes, Scotty said. Pretty easy after all. Guess the town is small enough so he wasn't worried about finding us. We'll give him a choice to make when Tony and I leave. Zircon smiled. Let's see whether he stays with you or follows us. Not until the boys had changed into swimming trunks in the cabin of the water witch did they find themselves an answer to Zircon's question. The shadow had decided to stay with them. This time it was Rick who spotted him. The shadow was nearly hidden behind a curve in the shoreline. To anyone who was not aware that they were being tailed, he would have appeared to be with any of the other casual figures that went unhurriedly about their business in the neighborhood. If Scotty hadn't pointed him out, Rick would not have suspected that the shadow had the slightest interest in the spindrift party. 
Are we going to rig the aqualungs? Scotty asked. Let's not bother. Masks, snorkels, and fins. We can swim out and take a look at some of the local coral heads. How about a gun? Rick considered this. No, we don't want to do any hunting. But you might take a hand spear in case something really inviting shows up. And let's take our knives. He had also decided against taking his camera. A leisurely, unencumbered swim was what he wanted. There would be time enough for hunting fish or taking pictures later when they got to Clipper Key. While Scotty went into the cabin to select a spear from their assortment of fishing gear, Rick surveyed the water witch with satisfaction. It was a 35-foot craft with a small cabin forward and a spacious cockpit aft. It had been used as a diving tender before, apparently, because there was a ladder that could be swung outboard for a diver to use. There was also a small boom that could be rigged quickly for lowering or lifting gear from the water. The gas tanks were ample for their purposes. One filling would be more than sufficient for a round trip to Clipper Key, plus any cruising they would do while on the island. The tanks were full. Water capacity, an important consideration on waterless Clipper Key, was more than adequate. In addition to a built-in 50-gallon tank in the cabin, there was a rack of five 10-gallon jerry cans in the cockpit. Scotty emerged from the cabin with a short, low-powered spring gun. I thought I might as well bring a light gun, he said. It's just as easy to carry as a spare. Okay. Rick led the way down the pier to the beach, carrying his mask, snorkel, and slippers. These he placed carefully on one of the Skywagon's pontoons in order to protect the clear glass of his mask from any possible scratching. Then, with a yell to Scotty to hurry, he bounded through the shallows, threw himself forward, and planed along the surface of the water. Lifting his head for a quick breath, he dove under, feeling the wonderful coolness of the water close over him. He judged his temperature quickly. It was close to 80 degrees, he estimated, and cool by comparison to the warm air. He reversed course quickly and stood up. Scotty was also in the water now. I'm glad we didn't bother with suits, Rick said. In water like this, it would have been too warm in mid-season suits. Because of the coldness of the water off the New Jersey coast, the boys had equipped themselves with full waterproof rubber suits under which long underwear was worn and with lighter mid-season suits of foam neoprene. Because of the reported warmth of the water in Virgin Islands, they hadn't added the suits to their already heavy load of supplies. They returned to the beach, picked up their equipment, and took it into the water. Rick sat down and rinsed out his flippers, then carefully removed the last traces of sand from his feet. He pulled the flippers on, adjusting them for maximum comfort. His face mask was next. He spat into it, then rubbed the saliva all over the glass. This rather unsanitary-appearing trick was an essential, since saliva is an excellent anti-fogging compound needed to help keep the glass clear underwater. Then he rinsed his mask lightly and adjusted the head straps, leaving the mask on his forehead. The snorkel used by the boys were plastic tubes curved at both ends. At one end was a mouthpiece, at the other was a cage that held a rubber ball. A dive or a rough wave action floated the ball upward, closing the tube and preventing the water entry. Rick and Scotty adjusted the rubber bands of their snorkels around their heads above the mast straps. Scotty was ready. 
He slipped his mask into place, molded the soft rubber skirt of the mask to the contours of his face, inhaled through his nose to make sure the seal was airtight, and then called, Let's go! He gripped the mouthpiece of his snorkel between his teeth, the rubber flange under his lips, and slid into the water. Rick was right behind him. As his mask touched the water, he saw the white coral sand at the bottom a few inches down. The only sign of life was a hermit crab, perhaps a half an inch in length, dragging his home in the moment, a tiny spiral shell. In one hand, Scotty carried the spear gun by its pistol grip. He swam in the position that suited him best, both arms hanging limply down. Rick, on the other hand, preferred to swim with arms relaxed at his sides, as long as his hands were empty. When he carried a spear gun or his camera, he also swam with his arms hanging downward. Neither boy used his arms for swimming. The rhythmic, powerful leg strokes were enough, thanks to the swim fins. The water deepened rapidly, but lost none of its clarity. Even at a depth of a dozen feet, Rick thought, he could have counted every grain of sand. This was unlike anything he'd ever experienced. At home in Jersey, visibility of five feet was considered good. Lost in the enjoyment of really clear water, he completely forgot about the shadow. Scotty reminded him. He touched Rick's arm and signaled to stop. The boys removed their snorkel mouthpieces and faced each other upright in the water, holding position with easy flipper movements. Just pretend we're talking, Scotty said. Don't look around. I'm trying to spot our friend over your shoulder. After a moment, he shook his head. No sign. Wonder if he ran for his bathing suit. Forget him. Let's just swim. You see any coral heads? Darker water off yonder. Let's take a look. They readjusted their snorkels and headed in the direction Scotty had indicated. Rick breathed easily through the tube, constantly scanning the bottom. Now and then, he saw various kinds of debris on the bottom, including abandoned beer cans and a section of newspaper that had not yet rotted away. Rubbish like this was to be expected in a harbor, he supposed, but it was still as unattractive to a swimmer as junk along the roadside is to the motorist. Suddenly, he noticed a fish, the first he had seen. He took a deep breath and dove by letting his head drop and then lifting his legs to a nearly vertical position. He slid underwater without a splash. Then his fins were below the surface. He started his leg motion again, and the flippers propelled him smoothly downward. The fish was perhaps a foot long and silvery, with a pointed nose and yellow fins. Rick couldn't identify it. The fish was busily rooting in the sand for morsels of food, and paid no attention to the diver until Rick reached out and almost touched it then it sped just beyond reach and commenced rooting again. His curiosity satisfied for the moment, Rick surfaced and rejoined Scotty. As he took position at his friend's side, the other boy hooted once, their signal for attention. The hooting was done by making a kind of hooty groan into the snorkel mouthpiece, about the only sound that could be made without letting water pass the lips. Because water conducted sound so well, the hoot could be heard clearly some distance away. Rick lifted his face from the water and saw that Scotty was pointing to an area a short distance to their right. He followed Scotty's lead and saw the reason for the signal. It was a rocky, coral-covered area, about 30 feet square and perhaps 15 feet below the surface. 
The boy swam directly over to it, then floated motionless, watching the activity below. At first glance, there appeared to be only a pair of odd-shaped filefish nibbling at the formation. But as their vision adjusted, they made out literally dozens of tiny, colorful fish in clefts, under overhangs, or waiting motionless against a patch of color on the rocks. Rick pointed to a school of about ten vivid little fish of electric blue color. The largest was less than two inches long. Scotty hooted for attention and pointed in his turn to a section of the rock that held over a dozen sea urchins that looked like black horse chestnuts with exaggerated spines. Rick watched a pair of brown doctor fish, about eight inches long, swim by below. Then his attention was attracted by a brilliant red squirrel fish peering out of a cleft. He pointed the red fish out to Scotty, who in turn showed him where a little moray was peering out of a hole near the base of the rock. Rick was fascinated. If a tiny patch of rock held this amount of life, what must the real reefs be like off of Clipper Key? He was suddenly impatient to get going, to put on his aqualung and explore the reef from top to bottom. And if they should really find the wreck of the maiden hand, there was every chance that the exploration of the wreck and the sea life it had acquired would more than compensate for the treasure none of them really hoped to find anyway. What a vacation. He was suddenly conscious of a throb in his ears. He listened and tried to identify it. A motorboat of some kind, but it didn't sound like a very powerful one. He lifted his head and searched for it. Scotty, too, had heard the boat. He began to tread water, lifting his mast and rinsing it because it had fogged a little. Rick spotted the boat. It looked like a large rowboat, powered with an outboard motor, and it headed in their direction. Scotty took his snorkel out of his mouth. Better stay topside and watch. We don't want to start our vacation by getting run over. Too true. Isn't this great? I've never seen so many kinds of small fish in one place in my life. Wait until we get out to the reefs where the big ones are. Scotty patted his spear gun. I'll keep us supplied with fresh seafood. Wonder if there are any lobsters around. But Rick had stopped listening. Scotty, that guy's heading right for us. The boat was getting close, and through his faceplate, Rick could make out the figure of a single occupant. Scotty suddenly gripped his arm. Rick, that's our shadow! Rick started. Are you sure? Yeah, I don't like this. What would he come out here for? Get ready to dive. Scotty pulled his mask into place and molded it to his face, then gripped his snorkel between his teeth. Rick followed suit and leveled off in the water in diving position but he hesitated, waiting to see what the boat would do. didn't take long to find out. The boat stayed on a perfectly straight course and headed directly for them. Rick waited. Perhaps the shadow intended to shear off when it got close. He might have come out to talk with them? Scotty hooted four times, their signal for danger. Then he went under. Rick hesitated until it was clear that the boat did not intend to swerve. He saw the shadow's face set in grim lines. Then his legs went up and he slid under the water, using his hands as well as his legs to pull himself down to safety. He thought incredulously, this guy tried to run us down. A dozen feet under, he turned over onto his back and saw the bright circle of the propeller and its trail of foam. The boat was passed. He 
He shot to the surface and filled his lungs with air, waiting for the next move. The boat spun around in a tight turn and headed back. Scotty surfaced next to Rick, pulled the snorkel from his mouth and gritted, Swim away! Let him use you as a target! I'm going to get that son of a spiny sea walrus! Rick softened the position of the spear in Scotty's gun that his friend had charged the weapon during the dive. He nodded, then turned and swam away, flippers flailing as though trying to hurry. He watched over his shoulder and saw the boat head for him. He was breathing hard from the excitement now, but he took a deep breath and got ready to dive, but he still swam, leading the rapidly overtaking boat until it was almost on him. Only then did he shoot downward, twisting as he went. He looked back in time to see Scotty sight the spear gun and fire as the boat went past. At first, Rick thought his pal had missed. Then he realized what Scotty had done. The spear shaft was attached to a long wire lead, and the leader was a safety line coiled around a spool just ahead of the pistol grip. Scotty had deliberately fired ahead of the propeller, knowing that the wire leader would be caught and would wrap around the shaft. Rick saw the spear stop short as the wire caught and saw it hauled back against the propeller and drop free as the prop blades cut it loose. Scotty shot up for breath and then dove instantly toward the rapidly falling spear. Rick had to breathe himself. He surfaced. He caught a quick breath and then went under again. Scotty was picking up the spear. Rick saw him place it in the gun barrel swing the loader over the razor-sharp harpoon head, and shove down on the spring. In a moment, the gun was loaded again. Luckily, the spear had not bent when the propeller blade hit it. The boat had come to a halt, the engine dead. The propeller could no longer turn against the wrapping of the wire and the heavy fish line. Scotty hooted twice their signal to surface, and Rick followed him up. Near the surface, they separated, Rick taking the side of the boat away from his friend. He longed for a weapon, even a hand spear, but he was helpless. Scotty would have to get in the first blow with the gun. But, Rick thought, that might give him time to get over the gunwale to grapple with the shadow. His head broke the water. He pulled the snorkel from his mouth and let it hang. As luck would have it, the shadow saw him first. He stood up, worn his hands, poised for a swig at Rick's head. Scotty's voice stopped the swing. Don't you do it, or you'll get three feet of steel through you. The man turned and faced the needle point of Scotty's spear. The oar dropped from his hands. Rick gulped in relief. Apparently the shadow had no other weapon. Jump overboard, Scotty ordered. The man hesitated. Scotty thrust the spear gun forward. Jump, I said. The shadow did, and sank in a flurry of bubbles. When he rose to the surface again, the point of the spear was against his back. Hang on to the boat with both hands, Scotty directed. Rick got to his side with a kick of his flippers and ran his hands over the man's clothing. He found a switchblade, which he put in his own belt. He's clean, he said. No other weapons. Take a look in the boat, Scotty suggested. Rick did so, lifting himself up onto the gunwale. There was nothing in the boat but oars and a can of gasoline. You want to tell us why you tried to run us down? Rick asked. The shadow merely stared. Talk, or I'm going to put this spear right through you, Scotty ordered. The man spoke, and his accent was the soft speech of the island. 
No, you won't. I could explain running down swimmers by accident, but you could never explain putting a spear through a man in a boat. You don't want that kind of trouble. Scotty grinned at the truth of it. Okay, he said. Just one thing. Don't push us too far. Stay in the water until we're ashore, and don't try to overtake us. Better heed that advice, Rick warned. Come on, Scotty. Let's get out of here. He put his snorkel back into place. Scotty moved to his side. Welcome to the hospitable waters of St. Thomas, he said. Let's say we look up some friendly sharks before we go ashore. Chapter 4 Visitors by Night Rick and Scotty stood on the pier and watched their erstwhile shadow rose slowly toward another pier. We should have probably have tied him up and called the police, Rick remarked. It wouldn't have gotten us anything, Scotty disagreed. He could always claim he didn't see us in the water. After all, it wouldn't be the first time divers had been run over by motorboats. It's too late now, anyway. Let's get dressed and go to the hotel. Tell Zircon and Tony about all this. As they dressed in the small cabin of the water witch, Rick spoke aloud the question that had been bothering him. What did he have to gain by running us over? That's what puzzles me. It was a stupid thing to try because he didn't really have much chance of getting both of us, or even one of us, once he failed to catch us by surprise. He wasn't very well prepared for murder either, Scotty added. No weapons except for that switchblade. Rick nodded agreement. He was desperate, he concluded. Suddenly, he had a chance on getting us. He must have known it wasn't much of a chance. Either he lost his head or he wasn't very bright. What could have made him try? Scotty had no answer, nor could Rick even hazard a reasonable guess. They locked the cabin of the water witch and walked into town and found a taxi. Their shadow did not show up again and if a new tail had replaced him, the new one was too good to be spotted. However, the boys doubted that they were being followed. I just don't get it, Rick said for about the twentieth time. Our friend must have lost his head, otherwise he'd have waited on shore and continued to follow us when we came out of the water. We'll probably never know, Scotty returned. After all, we'll be gone in the morning. I know, but meanwhile, we'd better have eyes in the back of our heads. The taxi discharged them in front of Alexander's rest, and they climbed out and surveyed the hotel with interest. Scotty spoke first. Alexander's rest? Which Alexander? Alexander the Great or Hamilton? If it was Hamilton, as Dr. Ernst said, he must have built it personally. It was a two-story frame structure that had definitely seen better days. On closer inspection, Rick decided that the second story had been added as an afterthought. It looked like the second layer of a poorly constructed cake. Inside, however, the hotel proved to be very comfortable. It was cool, and the rooms were large and clean. The boys learned that they had been registered in a twin bedroom on the second floor, while Zircon and Briati were on the first floor. The boys found the scientists attired only in shorts, cooling off over long, cool drinks. They accepted glasses of iced ginger ale and told the scientists of their adventures. Amazing, Tony Briotti shook his head. Do you realize you two are a phenomenon? 
I should write you up in a scientific journal. What, because you mean we turned the tables on a shadow? Scotty asked. No, because you're adventure-prone. Did you ever hear how some people are accident-prone? Well, you're adventure-prone. Zircon chuckled. A good observation of these two. I agree absolutely, Tony. They are adventure-prone. Rick sighed. Okay, what's the joke? No, I'm quite serious. Tony found more ice for his glass. Insurance statistics show that certain people are accident-prone. Accidents happen to them. They're going along, minding their own business, and bang. A streetcar jumps the tracks and hits them. Or they step into an open manhole. They're the kind of people who always manage to be walking under things when workmen drop tools. And you, Zircon concluded, are adventure-prone in the same way. Consider this. Had you walked down the street either a minute earlier or later this morning, you would not have seen Steve Ames. It's quite likely you would never have known of his presence in town. But what happens? You walk right into an adventure. One thing leads to another, and suddenly, a stranger is trying to run you down with a motorboat. That's what bothers me, Rick replied. There's no pattern to it. It just makes no sense. It doesn't have to. Tony Briotti said with a grin. The golden skull pattern didn't make any sense either. But you got us into more excitement than I knew was possible. You're just adventure prone. And for the sake of my gray hair, stay out of trouble, Zircon pleaded. Stay close to us until we get to Clipper Key. It'll be a pleasure, Rick assured him. Only let us out of your sight long enough to shower, okay? I'm sticky. We'll stay in the hotel. Scotty promised. Fine. I'll feel better about it if I know where you are. Suppose you come by in an hour and we'll have a quiet dinner at the Ernst's. Dinner was quiet but interesting. The Ernst's were excellent hosts, and both Dr. and Mrs. Ernst had many tales of the islands to tell. As the good doctor had promised, the boys enjoyed the wonderful variety of sea life Mrs. Ernst had collected to keep in saltwater tanks. She identified for them a number of the smaller reef fish, including clowns, demoisels, and even deadly scorpion fish. The party broke up early, since the start for Clipper Key was to be made at dawn by the scientists. The plan was for Zircon and Tony to make the trip over in the water witch, with the boys flying over in the sky wagon. That way, both the plane and the boat would be available. Zircon thought that fast trip to St. Thomas might be necessary to replenish supplies, and he added that he would be happier if the plane were available, in case of an accident. That way, the patient could be in Charlotte, Amalie, in a short time. As the boys bid good night to the scientists and started up the stairs to their room, Rick asked, Any sign of a shadow tonight? Nope. Guess these friends are... Enemies must have lost interest. I hope you're right. As long as Steve ordered us to stay out of the case, I'll be glad when we get to the key and get underwater. We have to find that precious gadget, even if it takes two solid weeks of diving. If we don't, Barbie will never let us forget it. This last was uttered as Rick turned the key in the lock and pushed the door open. He flicked on the light, then gave a sudden gasp. The shadow and a stranger were in their room. The boys looked into the muzzles of thirty-eight caliber pistols. 
Come on in quietly, the stranger said. Put your hands on tops of your heads and sit down on the bed over there. The boys did so. They had no alternative. Rick's mind raced. Somehow they had to warn the scientists and they had to get out from under the muzzles of the guns. What could these men want? The stranger sat down on the other bed. His pistol muzzle was centered precisely on Rick's belt buckle. We want information. Give it to us without any trouble and we'll go away. Give us a hard time and you'll regret it. Rick studied the stranger. He was medium height, dressed in tan slacks and a sports shirt with a darker jacket. His face was ordinary. He might have been a store clerk or a streetcar conductor or nearly anything. But Rick saw from the way his jacket fit that he was powerfully built for his size and that his hands were lean and strong-looking. He had a heavy tan as though he had spent many months in the sun. What do you want to know? Scotty asked. Let's start with what you were saying when you walked in. Who is Bobby? My sister. She's at home in New Jersey, said Rick. The stranger sighed. I was afraid of this. Give us straight answers, or you'll buy plenty of grief. Who is Bobby? What does he represent? He told you, Scotty answered. She's his sister. The stranger tried a different tack. How come you know where to swim today? Did Ames tell you? No, Rick replied. We just swam straight out from the pier looking for coral heads. Come on, you must have some source of information. Who gave it to you? We didn't have any source of information, Scotty protested. We just went for a swim. The stranger lifted the pistol menacingly. You better sing and it better be straight. I'm warning you. Warn all you like, Rick said. What do you want us to say? The shadow walked over and pulled back his fist. Lay off, the stranger growled. You put enough stupid stunts for one day. You'll be lucky if the boss doesn't rip the height off you. The former tail subsided and glared at the boys. The stranger rose. All right, if you won't talk here, we'll take you where you will talk. Get up. The boys looked at each other. Scotty raised his eyebrows and Rick grinned. He asked calmly, Suppose we don't go. Oh, you go, the stranger snapped. I don't think we will, Scotty answered. Look, mister, you're at a hotel. It's early, there are people in the lobby. How far do you think you're going to get if you try to march us downstairs with a gun in your hand? We'll not go into the lobby, the stranger told them. We'll go into the way we came in, through the window, and you'll go quietly or we'll take our chances. They might catch us, but you wouldn't care with a couple of slugs in you. Pete, go outside and wait. They'll come down one at a time. Keep them covered, and don't hesitate to shoot if they try anything. The shadow slipped through the window, hung by his hands, and dropped. The stranger's gun singled out Rick. Get going, you. Rick shrugged. There was nothing else to do but obey, at least with a moment. He looked at Scotty, and his pal made a small gesture to the right. Rick's forehead wrinkled. This was no signal he recognized, unless Scotty meant to jump to the right. He swung a leg over the sill and looked down. The shadow was waiting. The light from the window glinted dully off the gun in his hand. 
Rick went on out, then holding by his hands, he gave a swing to the right and dropped. The gun covered him as he rose to his feet again. Against the wall, the shadow hissed. Rick dutifully moved back against the wall. The shadow was standing about six feet away. Overhead, Scotty was climbing through the window now. Rick watched carefully as his pal lowered himself to full length and swung to the left. Instantly, Rick divined Scotty's tactics. If the two boys were apart, the gun couldn't cover both of them at the same time, and there would be an instant while the stranger jumped when only a single gun would be on them. And the shadow had already shown that he wasn't the smartest man in the world. Rick slipped to the right a step or two while the shadow was distracted by Scotty's jump. Scotty fell to his knees, and in getting up, he managed to put a few more feet between himself and Rick. Watch em, the stranger's voice floated down. Rick glanced up and saw the stranger with one leg over the sill. He tensed. Scotty said, Listen, you mug. The shadow's head turned toward Scotty, and Rick left the ground in a wild spring. He struck the shadow, hand clawing for the gun. He found a wrist and twisted falling backwards as he did so. The shadow, the entire weight of his own body on his wrist from the throw, screamed. The gun landed on the ground. Rick let go and scrambled for it, but Scotty was there before him. In the instant of the struggle, the stranger had hesitated on the windowsill, hand grabbing for the pistol he had tucked in his belt. He pulled it free and aimed at the struggling figures below, but in the gloom there was no way to distinguish friend from foe, and in that heartbeat, Scotty picked up the shadow's gun and fired one snap shot. The stranger's gun dropped to the ground and he fell backwards into the room. Scotty thrust the pistol into the shadow's stomach. Face the wall, he ordered. Put your hands against it. Now support your weight on your hands. The shadow did as ordered. Rick took the man's legs and pulled them backwards so that the shadow's whole weight was against his hands. His outstretched body formed the hypotenuse of a right triangle. The only way he could move to regain his balance was to lower himself to the ground and then get up. Rick picked up the stranger's fallen pistol and hefted it. Better see about the one upstairs, he advised. I'll watch this one. I fired at his hand, but I was high, Scotty told him. He got it in the shoulder, but he won't get far. Zircon and Briati charged around the corner of the hotel in pajamas and slippers, followed by the other guests and members of the hotel staff. We had a little trouble, Rick explained briefly. The scientist took in the situation at a glance. Just like I said, Tony Briati muttered, adventure prone and lucky. How do you beat a combination like that after all? <laughs>